Father, we thank you that you have sent your son to be our vision now. In fact, Lord, we have no other vision but him. He, he is the vision of all that we do. The Bible tells us that whatever we do, whatever we eat, wherever we go, everything we do needs to be in Christ and thought through him in those ways, Lord. And so what an appropriate song. And yet our hearts have tendencies to wander, tendencies to look at wrongs of others, justify ourselves. We, we struggle with those things, Lord. And it's a song like that, truth of God's word, that refocuses us back to say, Lord, are you my vision? Or have I got my eyes off of you? Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. You are a God who forgives us of our sins. And though we stray at times, you bring us back. You leave the 99 and go gather the one. You rejoice over them. And so we thank you, Lord, that you're a gracious and kind God. Now, Lord, as we look at a passage that's extremely relevant today, uh, we pray that you would give us wisdom. You'd help us know how to Respond to the things we see in the world, how to pray better, how to trust you better in difficult times. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm very thankful that I've been teaching on, really on Israel in, in a lot of ways as I work my way through the Pentateuch, especially when we come to the things we've seen this week. We were away this last week and, um, of course, all the attacks in Gaza and Golden Heights um, all went down while we were away, and uh, like you, the photographs, uh, the the news that's coming out of there is extremely disturbing, isn't it? To think that mankind can get to that point where that you would slaughter children in such a grotesque way. It's uh, eye-opening, and it causes you to understand man has been wicked to the core from the beginning. He has not grown more evil. He has just got more uh, ways of doing it. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they fell completely. Depravity hit man. Man doesn't get more deprived. He just gets more inventful of evil things. The nation of Israel has always been a target of their surrounding nations. We'll see that today, why, how God set things up. Um, and they will be for a long time. God is going to keep his discipline hand on them till they look on the one whom they pierce just like everyone else. And yet, because two-thirds of the Bible is about the nation of Israel... They become a uh, focal point for us in a lot of ways. When you look at this passage, we begin to see how God is bringing them into the land. This is now long before the events of today. But even in this passage that is, again, remember it's in the book of Numbers, so there's a tremendous amount of numberings and and directions and, and names that come in here. God is setting in order uh, an inheritance for this nation that they are undeserving of. Thus my title, God's habit of giving what is not deserved. That's what he does. God gives us what we don't deserve. And every Christian in this room is going to receive the kingdom of God by his grace alone. Not because any of us deserve it. Not because we were born to the right people or the right time or whatever that may be. It's because of the grace of God. And so, again, as we look at this today, and and I'm going to work my way and show you some pictures and work my way to Psalms 22 where it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I'm going to explain that text tonight. Um, I, I think this is very important for us to understand what's going on here. A couple of thoughts here I want to look at first. In chapter 34, Numbers, an earthly kingdom from the gracious hand of God. Uh, that, that point there, I, I think, is my main thought as I studied this text. And 
I was reading some commentaries and stuff on the way back on the plane uh, this week. Um, and I just kept thinking, God, you're just so gracious. <laughs> you give kingdoms to undeserving people. And that, that's just astounding, isn't it? And here this nation, we've watched them come from Egypt. We've been trailing along in this beautiful story through the Pentateuch. And, and we've watched them rebel time and time again. In fact, um, earlier in chapter 21, he says, These ten times you have rebelled against me. And yet here he is. Our gracious God bringing in this people to a land they do not deserve. Well, look at me if just the first couple of verses, and then I'm going to refer to a lot of these. There are a lot of uh, names and borders that will explain a little bit. And I'll use some maps here in a minute. But Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 1, Command to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance even the land of Canaan according to its borders. Well, this chapter, again, is about the approximate borders. And I say approximate because we don't know exactly where they are. Some of the places don't exist anymore that are mentioned here. But they're the approximate borders of the promise of the land of Canaan to the nation. Now, notice he says, when you enter the land. They're not in the land. They're on south at the border. They're, <laughs> they're far from getting across that that Jordan right now. But there's a promise here from God. I'm going to give you this earthly kingdom. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you. And when you get into it, I want you to understand it as an inheritance. Now that word's extremely important, especially as we move into um, an understanding of life under the new covenant. Those are the same terms that are used for us. We, are, we have an inheritance from the Lord. We've received an inheritance. And so this certainly is physical and really happened and, and certainly has its spiritual implications. But we understand that God has given Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have repented of their sin through, and came to him through Christ alone, we have an inheritance. It cannot fade away, Peter tells you. It cannot be defiled. You have an inheritance. In fact, First Peter chapter 1, verse 5, I think, says that God himself is protecting the inheritance. So it's really fun to kind of think about that. And yet, you and I are going, wow, I don't deserve that. But that's what God has done. Now, Canaan was a previously recognized geographical area. This is not, this is not just some unknown area and a few people living around in a few places, um, and Israel comes in and, and takes them. This is a very documented geographical landmass. And it was documented all the way back from the 5th, 15th century B.C. and found, even to this day, in Egyptian documents. This whole area called the Canaan land. And through these early documents, um, though they don't spell out the exact borders that the Bible does, you can see that this land was here, it was inhabited, it was known, it was charted, and it was mapped. And that's quite fascinating. And I want to show you, I think, our first picture Shelby has that for me up here. And this is a picture of what it was before they came in. And there's a lot of interesting things here to think about um, when you come in here. So they're, they're sitting out here uh, in this area right here. Um, Moses is going to die on Nebo there where he can look into the land. Um, and they're sitting here, going to go across the Jordan after we get through Deuteronomy. Um, they're hanging out there. They've been wandering out here for 40 years. They came up here to Kadesh Barnea right here. And they wandered around in here for 40 years. Fought a few wars. Took on Edom. Took on the Moabs, Ammonites, um, and so forth. And won these, uh, these areas here in the two tribes. Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh are going to remain here. And they are staged right here. That's where they're hanging out. This area still <laughs> is a problem, isn't it? Notice it says the Philistia, Phil, Philista, the Philistines. Israel was never able to drive them out. And that is a still a problem today. Some of the worst atrocities happened here and then up here in the Golden Heights. Um, uh, this is the Gaza Strip. Still a massive problem today. Still extremely close to Israel. I'll show you a map later where, what they actually have now. Keep that up there, Shelby, as I go along for a little bit. The description in these verses here, though, when we start to look at these next few verses, 3 through 15, they mark just the thoroughness of God. Um, 
there's precision to it. And though we don't know where all these places are because they, they're not there anymore, um, when we study the text, there's tremendous precision and thoroughness by God as he takes them to this land. And when we get to the time of Moses here, as he's recording, think about this, God's, God's telling him, he's recording this in Numbers 34, there is clear and definable boundaries that he gave to the nation of Israel. God is by far the greater than any government and anybody else who sets down boundaries. It is God's gift to them. As I said today, not all places and names are identifiable. Some of those are not there. You'll see in here you, you can't find them on maps. Um, but we have a good idea of the large and extensive area that God gave. Even as you study King David and King Solomon, if there would have been a time that they could have got all of that land... All of the land of Canaan there would have been during David and Solomon. But even they failed. Even they did not take all of what God had given them. And this wasn't new land. Remember, this is where um, our dear friend Abraham wandered. He came in somewhere around this Jordan Valley. And Esau, uh, not, not Esau, Lot looked across at the valley and saw how good that was, right? And so he went down into the valley and took the good land and Abraham went the opposite way. But while he was doing that, you remember this in Genesis chapter 15, God had Abraham walk that land long before he was a nation. It was just Abraham and Sarah. They were, they were still barren. They had no children. God had them walk this land. So this land has been given to a, a, a prospective nation long before Numbers chapter 34. Now it's important to note that God's marking out the kingdom of Israel before it's ever given. Usually you go in, you take something, and then you start setting your borders. God's marking that out before it ever happens. And he did that in Israel, in, in uh, Abraham's day, and then here. Now I want to go to map two here, because here we begin to start to see the borders are going to come, and we're going to talk about these here. Um, this is the, uh, the, there's a lot of good maps. Your Bible, uh, I think, MacArthur's study Bible has some really good maps in it, and some of the other study Bibles have some. But I found this one that gives you kind of an idea where things are set. This is the, the Jordan River, of course. Here's the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Remember, they decided they would stay on this side and then go fight with the rest of the men to win this, these, these boundaries, and then come back to their people. So they're, again, staged right outside of here. They're going to go across to Jericho um, at the end of Deuteronomy. So their stage here, this is already land that is being mapped out for those two and a half tribes. But you begin to see all of this territory that God's going to outline here. Now, keep that up there, but notice in chapters, I mean, verses 3 through 5, just glance at this. Um, I won't read all this. Um, and you begin to understand here that there's a description of various boundaries. In 3 through 5, you come to the southern border. Now, Joshua 15 is exactly like this one. We, we see exact same uh, uh, instruction of where these boundaries are. The southern border is the Judea territory. It comes all the way down here. Um, it comes just below Jerusalem, takes in uh, Bethlehem. So this would be where Christ was born. Um, they would have came with a child all the way down into Judea area. It goes down, but Bathsheba is in Simeon area. Um, we'll get into him in just a minute. and works its way all the way down through this wilderness of Zin. Um, and then Kadesh Barnea is where they first came. Um, the first set of Israelites coming out of Egypt. This is where they rejected God and were turned away um, here. So this is the, the borders that you see for the land of Judah, for the tribe of Judah here. Um, in verse 6, you pick up what the Bible says here is the western side of the, of the promised land. And again, you'll notice the Philistines here. Um, and they stood between Judah and the Mediterranean. Um, and this was often a problem. But there's a lot of things here that we can remember. Um, you remember that David went to Gath and he, head out, he hid out there and, and stayed with them and tried to fight battles with them. He was in that area. Um, uh, you can see even names of gods that eventually filtered into the nation of Israel. Uh, Philist the Philistines were difficult. When God brought them out of Egypt, remember he said, I did not want to bring them up the coastline so they would run into the Philistines. He brought them out through the wilderness, across the Red Sea, and in this way. Uh, so the Philistines uh, border um, that western side. If you follow the western side all the way up, it goes up along the sea. 
um, verse 6. Uh, we see it all the way, that goes all the way up the top to Asher. Now, this northern border is a little, a little sketchy. We don't, we don't know quite where it is, but it's somewhere in this area. Um, Sion and Tyra um, are named throughout the scriptures. Uh, they came, they fought with Og against the nation of Israel. But then you get into Lebanon, and you heard that today, right? Lebanon sent missiles into uh, Israel today. Still a problem there. But during David's rule and Solomon's rule, there was a good relationship. Um, the trees, uh, the cedars that built the, the tabernacle and, and the house of God, they all came from this, this mountain range right about here. So the border, wouldn't, the border would have been somewhere around. This is close where it would be up in here. But this western border would run from Dan all the way up to the top of Asher there. You see that in verse 6. Verse 7 through 9, you see the northern border. Um, this bordered from the coast over there above Sion over to Mount Hor, which would have been over in this, somewhere in this area right here. And of course, this is Lebanon in the mountains of Lebanon right there in that area. Some believe this border, again, could have been more north, um, uh, but it wouldn't have gone too far because we knew we know that uh, David had a relationship with Hira. Remember Hira? He was the one who got all the beams for him and so forth, and Solomon as well. And so there was a good relationship in that uh, border there for a while, not anymore. Um, 10 through 13, we get down to the eastern border. Uh, this is a, a border that follows its way down here. Now, you'll notice in this text, it shows just this border all the way down here in verses, uh, I think, 14 and 15 are going to deal with these guys. It's coming down, so it cornered up here um, in the corner of Naphtali, up here around Mount Hor, and then works its way down to what is now the Sea of Galilee, would have been Chenereth, Sea of Chenereth uh, at that time. And then it made its way over down the, the Jordan River to give that side of the eastern side of those things. 14 and 15, uh, you'll notice he goes back. He describes the occupied tribes there of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, um, it, that they decided to stay outside of the land of Canaan and take that area. We talked about them a couple of weeks ago. Um, but listen, it's important to, to mention that the land of Canaan, defined in the scriptures, is much larger than Israel ever had. We, they never took this size of land. King David controlled uh, Canaan as much as anybody did. He, he ventured they, he took back a lot of this side, which they had lost for many years, but he never got it all back. Solomon either was able to do that, and it, and it shows that even though they fought and got some of the land back, the Numbers 34 shows that they never held the ba all the boundaries that God had given them. And so the land described in this chapter is a territory promised to the nation of Israel by God, but they never fully occupied it. The land remained in their enemies' hands. When you think about that, it's a tragedy, isn't it? The nation failed. When you think, when you think about that, they, they failed to cast out their enemies. And when you leave your enemies among you, you see what happens. It wasn't hard to see and read some of the things that were going on this week with Hamas and so forth. They were already among the people there. And they rose up and killed so many people. And, and Israel's failures came often right from the center of them. They failed to drive their enemies out. And the result of it was disastrous. And they continued to lose land after land after land. It's part of a judgment of God. We'll see in the book of Judges that... Uh, there we, we keep, one of the things that's kind of awful about Judges is all the land they had gained in Joshua, they keep losing it. And as you read Judges, you go, oh man, they just lost another track. They just lost another track. And because of disobedience, they were never the nation God desired them to be. They could have had so much more. They could have been a greater nation. If they'd have by faith trusted God, and that was always the issue, wasn't it? There was always the issue they failed to have faith in a living God who proved himself daily to them by giving them manna, splitting seas, splitting rocks, giving water, providing for them time and time again. But their faith failed them over and over. 
I think there's such great spiritual applications to that when you think about that. I think anytime we allow the enemies of our soul, right? Peter, 1 Peter 2.11 says that sin is waging war against our soul. When we leave that enemy in our soul, and we don't deal with it, we leave it in our lives, we doubtlessly will not understand and grasp all that God has for us. I thought deeply about this. It's very personal when you think about that. And, and, and you understand the sovereignty of God and, and all of that, but at the same time, you look at this and you go, God, what ground have I never had because I wouldn't trust you? What, what ministry that I could have done? What, what people could I have reached? What, what joy, and think about this, what joy I could have experienced if I would just let go of those things I held so tightly to? What areas of lack of faith do we not have in God that we lose to the enemy? You just can't miss this, can you? I think it really comes down to, in a New Testament sense, understanding the fullness of the joy of the Lord. Jesus said, I want you to have my joy and I want you to have it complete. Paul would tell, he would say over and over that my joy would be complete in you. He'd want to see that full joy. He wants to see people grasping the greatness and beauty of Christ and the life we have and the inheritance to come and live in light of that coming kingdom. He, he constantly, the New Testament constantly is pushing us to see those things. And yet warning us that if you don't deal with the evil, the, the sin in your heart, you're not going to get to see that full joy. This isn't loss of salvation. This is loss of joy. David experienced that himself. He fell with Bathsheba and he lost his what? Joy. He lost. He didn't lose his salvation. Return to me the joy of my salvation. He, for that time, I mean, David can look back and look what he lost. He, he sees that time he lost when he tried to hide it and fight it and so forth until he comes to full repentance. And, and that, you got to think about that, brothers and sisters. There's times where we live in sin, and what did we lose during that time? Relationships? The blessings of God in our lives at some level? I, I can't help but think of a nation that God drove their enemies out like wasps. Using, like they were like wasps to them. And yet in the end, they wouldn't believe. And it wasn't everybody, right? We, we see a guy like um, Caleb. Caleb um, heads down into this area. Remember, he goes to Joshua and he says, Hey, God promised me and Moses promised me a, 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 a land. And he went down in there and he took on <laughs> probably the descendants of uh, Goliath and and. and for all we know, intents and purposes in the scriptures, Caleb lived a full life um, and experienced the blessings of God because he believed God and he took on and drove out the enemies out of that land. But the size of the land versus Israel's inability to occupy it reminds you of the gener uh, generosity of God. And, and so it, it isn't this work saying, I want to be very careful here. I'm not experiencing all the joy of God because I'm not working hard enough to gain it. It's because I don't have faith enough in those areas where God says, trust me. I, I want to be very clear of that. This isn't, well, just strengthen yourself and get it done and then you have the joy of the Lord. This is God's word plainly and clearly telling you the boundaries of all of the, of the, of the inheritance that he has for us and me going, well... I'll just take this little corner right here. I'll be happy with that. I have so much more for you, God is saying. And so God is in the habit of giving people what they don't deserve. That's what he does. That's why he is the gracious God that we love, isn't he? He grants us eternal life when we deserve eternal hell. <laughs> That's what our God does for us. Paul tries to get this through our heads. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Inspired by God, chapter 3, verse 14. 
in this praying epistle, we call it, because he prays and preaches and prays and preaches. Here he slips into another inspired prayer, verse 14. For this reason I bow the knee before the Father. Now think about that. That's the same God that's giving the borders of the nation of Israel right in the passage we're in. Same God. No difference. He hasn't changed. He's immutable. He does not change because he doesn't need to change. So Paul says, I bow the knee to the Father, the Father of Israel, Father of all that land, Father of all that inheritance, Father of the, new, the church, all of that, from whom every family, in, in, every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now listen to this. Now think about the fullness of the land here. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. I don't even know how to explain that, brothers and sisters. I, I don't know how to plumb the depths of that statement. How vast are the sums of the riches of the glories of God? Sin can't even be in his presence. (laughs) His glory fills the universe. The psalmist, by the inspiration of the Spirit, tried to display him as just infinite glory. See, Paul wants us to get this. He's granted this to you and to me to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. This is not some outward thing. This is not some uh, prosperity gospel here. This is an inner strengthening that has a well that never runs dry. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. There it is. There it is. You can't solo bootstrap this, this one. This is that step of faith. I believe who you are. I believe you did what you said you did. I put my faith in you. And I know you even gave me that faith to be able to put it in you. And you say, well, that's salvation. No, that isn't this every day, isn't it? That's probably our problem. We don't wake up with that urgency for a God-given faith to live for him that day, isn't it? wants to dwell in our hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love, well, whose love is that? Well, it's got to be God's love. So now we know where the depth of this, I'm going to be speaking on this in coming weeks as we talk about the foundation of the church, but it's such a deep, it's the deepest soil you could ever imagine our our roots of humanity going down into. Don't, Don't when we, when we study this, and we'll get into this on Sundays, but when you, get it, when you start looking at this, you go, there's no reason I cannot love the way God instructs me to love because my roots of my being are down into Him. Everything I need, every, every nutrient, spiritual nutrient that I need is there, and my roots are there, and will I tap into it? May we be able to comprehend with all saints. Remember, this isn't for a select few. This is for all who are in faith in Christ. What the breadth and he- uh, length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ with surpassing knowledge. I mean, these are just massive borders, aren't they? They're almost endless borders here. That may be filled up in the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask and think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that amazing? When you look at these borders and you look at this little vagabond group who's living in tents, who have nothing really, except what they robbed out of Egypt, in a sense, as they plundered them. They have nothing. They don't have houses. They don't have homes. They don't have orchards. God's going to give them all of that. They come into that, and they look at that land, and it's just overwhelming. These guys are content not even going in. We're just going to stay on this side. And yet God graciously gives it to them. I couldn't help but think of Romans 8, 31 and 32. Just listen to this. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, don't we love that verse? We stop and think about it. Satan, all his forces, all the Hamases of this world, if God is for you, who can be against you? Well, how do you know that? Because he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, all believers. 
how will he also with him, that's Jesus, freely give us all things? Not give us all things, right? How will he not give us all things? All things. Begin to realize the borders of God's inheritance are just massive. James admonishes the believers in the first century, he said, but if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Jesus himself said in John 16, 24, until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive. And here he goes, so that your joy may be made full. That's the phrase that got me this week. Oh, Lord, I know why my joy isn't full all the time. I'm settling for less. I'm, I'm settling for the things of this life that are going to burn and go away and have no, no eternity to it. John, in his epistle, says this, 1 John 3, 21 and 22. Beloved, if our, hearts, if, if our heart does not condemn us, that's very important. In other words, if you're a believer, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Now that's exactly what God told the nation of Israel to do. Obey me, do what's right in my sight, do it from your heart, love me with all your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul and strength. That's, that's an Old Testament camp command that Jesus brings into the New Testament. Do that. Live for me. Now your heart is changed so you can live for me, and I'll give you what you ask. Now, that's, that's not prosperity gospel. That's, and, and again, the prosperity gospel tries to write on this. They find all these pastors. Look, you just, you just I'm the faith. You don't get all this. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that's, a, that's a selfish, man-centered, foreign-to-the-Bible gospel. This gospel says, I'll take everything you have for me, Lord, the good, the difficult, and by faith I'll walk with you because you died for me. Maybe right now, maybe, can we just take 30 seconds and think about, maybe you could identify an area or two in your life why your joy is not complete right now. Take 30 seconds and just get before the Lord and ask him, Lord, can you show me why my joy isn't complete? And please, because you might have a difficult issue going on and it might be easy to blame someone here. Look at your own heart. Ask God to show your own heart and say, why is my joy not fuller right now? Why, why, not, why am I not getting the larger border in the joy of my heart? Just take a minute and ask yourself that. I think our third map is a physical illustration. The land that they were supposed to have would have went down probably somewhere through here and around, all the way up through here and way up above here. This is what Israel has now. And it's a battle, every one of it. This has been a war <laughs> for so long. This is a group of outcast people of Arab tribes called the Palestinians. They really have not associated to many. They're, 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 not, they're not connected to a lot of, of the major Jordans and Syrians and Saudis. They're an outcast group. But they love to plague Israel because Israel has been in disobedience for a long, long time. And this is all they have left. The West Bank is in the heart of what they should have. See, see, I think this is just a great illustration to understand that might be my life. I, I only have this much joy when I could have all of this joy. But I've let this stay in here. And it's killing me. It's robbing me. Second thought. 
God appoints leaders. I know that's heavy, but I, I just couldn't help but look at that and think about what's going on today. And Israel, let me, and I'll say this a little bit later, Israel's still under the disciplined hand of God. And we're going to learn how to pray for them tonight before I leave this. But they are, don't forget this. I know there are Christian groups that idolize, uh, some of them are called Zionists and so forth. We do not idolize that nation. Yes, we understand that God selected them. They have been his people. And I firmly believe he's going to do a great demonstration and going to take a remnant and show them grace to the world. I believe that's coming someday. But they're under the disciplined hand of God. And we see it. And we will learn to pray for them better. Second thought. God appoints leaders and their God-given responsibilities. 16 through as you make your way back to Numbers 34, 16 through 29 here. These verses, uh, we begin to see names that God appoints. And this is interesting here. Um, now remember, I've kind of painted a t- difficult picture of going forward with the nation of Israel. But this time, right now, this is probably one of, uh, here through Deuteronomy and particularly through the book of Judges, Joshua, this is where they seem to live for God. And they are blessed and God does so much for them. And so this list of men is an important list. And these are names, they are appointed to be overseers of these allotments, these territories given to these tribes in the middle of this land of Canaan here. And the mere fact, when you look at this, um, that they are spoken of, in verse 17, men appointed by God himself, it, it, it has to indicate some importance here of the task that's about ready to go before them. And, and I thought about this. I said, God, you're entrusting these men, you know, these ten men listed here, because the other tribes, he's going to deal with them later that are across the Jordan there. Um, these ten, ten men, they are going to enact the will of God, lead their people tribe by tribe into this foreign country, and they're going to be responsible for making sure everybody gets their piece of land. Now, you want to talk about a difficult, uh, uh, what's that called when everybody fights over it and somebody dies? Yeah, inheritance stuff and some of the state planning and all that kind of stuff. People, wars happen over that stuff, right? How like you to be one of these guys and say you're in charge of giving out the land? Now, they were to do it by lot, and so it would help that. But these were men, most likely men of God. Um, the same thing happened back in chapter 1 when he appointed men from each tribe for senses. Um, I think he's doing the exact same thing here. But notice in verse 17, um, men like Moses and Aaron, they were chosen. Chapter 1, they were chosen. But here in verse 17, notice that he's changing the leadership here. Now Eliezer, the priests, and Joshua, the son of Nun, are now replacing them. So verse 17 says, just like I've chosen them, you choose these men. Look at verse 18. Here, one leader from each tribe is divinely chosen by God. He doesn't say, go pick somebody. I actually know who he is. I have his name right here. Your, imagine being this guy. Your name is in the eternal book of God. Is your name in the eternal book of God? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty fascinating, right? He calls us by name, and I think that's cool that he does this. I thought about that myself. I thought, well, I guess my name's written down too. But here these men are chosen to be leaders of this nation. You'll notice in 19 through 28, here these ten leaders are. They're mentioned, um, but Gad and Reuben and half tribe of Manasseh are not because they're already settled. And you see that in verses 14 and 15. They're in the Transjordan side there. But you'll notice that the term... Uh, the term of the tribes here are mentioned in their geographical order. So can you go back to map two, uh, Shelby? Is it possible to get back to that? And, and there's some interesting things that take place here. It starts with Judah. Um, and it's interesting why he starts with them and then south and not in the north. Most of the time the scripture starts from the north down. But here he starts from the south to the north. Um, Judah seems to be given... Uh, uh, a president here over over Simeon who's in the middle of them. And there's probably several reasons for that. It could be because that's where Caleb's going to get his land. And God had promised Caleb because of his faith in God. Or it just could be for the sheer importance that the tribe of Judah is going to play, um, particularly in the line of Christ and in the coming years of the nation of Israel. And remember, it's only Caleb, Joshua, and Eliezer who come out of, of the desert alive. 
Um, so I think that's probably why that they're listed first. Um, all the other names are significant as well here because uh, many of them represent God. As, as you go down through this list of names, notice in verse 20 through 28, um, we start to see this list of these individuals. I, I looked up some of them. I didn't find all of them. Um, but you'll notice in verse 20, uh, I think most of our English translations spell it out Samuel, but it's, it's Shemel, I think is how it is pronounced in the Hebrew. His name means name of God. So there's a character of, of God there. Um, the next one, Eladad in 21, his name meant God has loved. Um, I couldn't find the name 22. I found the name tw- in 23, Hanela. Um, it means favor of God. Um, I found Elazavand in verse 25. He means my God protects. A um, couple others in there. My God delivers. My God is redeemed, is a redeemer. And so uh, I, I think probably these men had lives. I think it speaks to their character and their integrity that God saw in them. Notice in verse 29, he says, These are those whom the Lord commanded to apportion the inheritance of the sons of Israel in the land of Canaan. So he commanded these men. I saw, I think it probably speaks to these leaders that God has selected. And most likely these men had proven themselves in their faithfulness. They were probably men like Caleb. Um, and God recognized them and gave them this great job. Even in the book of Hebrews, I, I, this is probably one of the texts that the writer of Hebrews is, is referring back to. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, 7, it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the results of their conduct imitate their faith. And so God always has men, leadership, male leaderships within his people um, from Israel now to the church uh, to imitate Christ and to be leaders in that. Uh, but as we think about this as a New Testament church, there's no greater leader than the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our leader now. He's the head of the body. For, uh, Colossians 1.18 says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's, he's everything to us, so he is a leader. But what I like about this is the fact that um, one, God gives them a land that's far greater than they could ever imagine, and yet they, they don't take that. But then he provides leaders to lead each tribe to where he ha- which place he has for them. Well, I want to end with um, one more thought here. I'll, uh, next week, I'll close out chapter 35 and 36, and we'll finish the book of Numbers. Um, but I want to close with Psalms 22. And the point there is pray for the peace of Israel. Um, but go to Psalms 22. I don't know if you saw this posted quite a bit this week, um, whether on Facebook or Instagram or you know wherever Christians will put some media out every once in a while. But it is an interesting passage, and I thought I would explain it. It may help us understand uh, a little bit what's going on. But always we want to look, look at the context of what the what the psalm is is written in, who it's written to, who was writing it, and so forth, I think that is extremely important. So we know how to pray for the peace of Israel. When we look at verses 1 and 2, we begin to understand this is David, and David has, uh, he's been on the, the war path, he's been fighting Saul, he's been fighting Philistines, he's been battling, he's finally made his way into Jerusalem, and here he opens up with this. I was glad, David said, when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So now we see what he's talking about. The tabernacle's been on the move, right? It's, it's been all over. In fact, in times, we don't even know where it is because the way King Saul is acting, and David's on the run with his men. We're not sure where it is, but now David has control over it. That tabernacle is brought into Jerusalem. It's now brought into the confines of the walls of Jerusalem. And you see in verse 2, there is an excitement by David here. He is excited. He's now able to worship in Jerusalem. There's a, there's a home for the tabernacle. And there's a sense of overwhelming joy spilling out of David as he anticipates. What I think he's anticipating here is the permanent home of the tabernacle of God. And I think he's full of joy here. And I think, wow, what a long journey from the house of God built at the foothill, foot, the foot of Mount Sinai, um, 
assembled there together, carried across to Kadesh Barnea, there when they reject, and then carried around the desert for 40 years, and now is on the border um, where we're at in Numbers 34, and then you follow it all the way through Joshua, and, and then in Judges, and some of the times of rebellion, the, the Ark of the Covenant is taken to the Philistines, and then returned, and, and you just wonder where this thing's been, and now it's home. Finally, David has secured its place, and you can just see joy coming out of David. He's praising God. Let us go to the house of the Lord. We know where it's going to be. Our feet are standing here. We're within the gates of Jerusalem. Let this time of rejoicing happen. Notice this in verses 3 through 5. Jerusalem that is built, a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for their thrones there set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Well, at this time, Jerusalem would have been a very small patch of land. If you've been to some of you who've traveled to Israel, and they'll show you when you get into Jerusalem how small that would have been when David was there. In fact, they believe they, they have mock-ups of David's little palace. It was not very big compared to Solomon's later. And when you get there, and I haven't been there, but I've seen lots of pictures through the years, it's a very small piece of ground of this land. It was compact. And when festivals would happen, when, when uh, certain holidays would hit, it would be packed with the tribes of the nation of Israel who would come together. And there they would make great noise. They would praise God. They would give thanks with loud and joyful voices. It was both individual and it was corporate. And they were together praising God. And David could sense this. He could sense that happening. They're going to come here. All the tribes are going to come here. And we're going to thank God together. And we're going to worship God. And David's heart's overflowing with the anticipation of that. I think you see in verse 4, he's speaking of the unity of the tribes. He looks forward to this. Remember, in David's short uh, uh, life so far, he has been all over the place. He has been in the wilderness running. He's been, he's been over to the Philistines. He's been all over the place. But now to know there's a central location where the nation can worship, he is full of joy. And Israel has um, been led around by this tabernacle. They've been, it's contained the Ark of the Covenant. And with that, you'll notice the judgment of God was there, right? That's where the judgment of God came. It came from that tabernacle. That's where God spoke to Moses and Aaron and so forth to give them the judgments that needed to take place. And now that's there. And so uh, I think you just see that come out of him as he says, for their thrones were set for judgment. Now the judgment of the nations can take place, that we have a home for this. And, and then also, it's not only just judgment, it's also the protection of the innocent. Notice Jerusalem's called the house of David. I think that's an important thing. It, I think, speaks of the royalty of David as king. But the word thrones in the plural is very important because there's going to be a succession of kings and individuals who will come through Jerusalem. And there, that is the seat of, da- the seat of David, the seat of Christ that is coming through there. And the promise of a final throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so David seems to have uh, some prophetic speech here of understanding that the seat of Christ is going to come through this walls as well. And certainly he does. But he comes to die the first time, the next time he comes to judge. Notice from the beginning, Jerusalem has always been connected with peace. When we get all the way back to Genesis um, 14 with King Melchizedek, he comes from the city of Salam, right? Uh, peace. And so there's an aspect of peace here. And, and think about it, after all the years of wars and the constant pursuit of King Saul, David longs for the peaceful confinements of, of Jerusalem. Saul's been taking care of the previous passages in 2 Samuel 3, 4, 5, even into 6. Um, those men from Saul's family who are trying to kill David, those all get taken care of, and a lot of his enemies are taken care of in those coming. And now he's come in, and he wants to get peace. He wants to be at peace inside these walls of Jerusalem. Notice verse 6 and 7. We come to the, the phrase that so many people are using lately. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. That's what David wanted. David believed in the promises of God. 
He knew what God said through Samuel. That there would be one who would rule forever. That there would be one who would bring peace. And he's longing for that. I think David knew that God had something far beyond him. And he longed for that peace. I'll come back to that in a minute. But look at verses 8 through 9 for the sake of time. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Here David is crying out for divine protection. I think he's probably asking for divine protection from hostilities both foreign and domestic. He's dealt with both of them, right? He's dealt with the Philistines and King Saul. And he longs, you can see this in this last couple of verses, he's longing for protection uh, and peace for his family, his friends, the people that God has called him to shepherd. He's called the sweet psalmist, the sweet shepherd and psalmist of Israel. That's what David is referred to. He wants that peace for those who are following him into the confines of Jerusalem. And he longs for the sake of the worshipers that they would be able to come to the house of God and there there would be good for them. But peace, peace always comes through blood. And the focus of the tabernacle that I see in this passage as well, because this is what this is focusing on, the house of the Lord. He keeps talking about that. The only way the Israelites had peace from their sin and their struggles that they had was they came and they offered the blood of another, right? Particularly the blood of an unblemished lamb in the days of atonement. And so that's where peace comes from. It comes from the blood of another. And when we think about praying for the peace of Israel or Jerusalem now in the situation that they're in, we know that peace will not come unless it comes with the true Prince of Peace. And this does not mean we, we don't help or pray or sorrow over what we've seen and what's happening there but as Christians as new covenant Christians under the new covenant we know nobody gets to the father except through Jesus he told them that God's told them that all along Isaiah 9 6 for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us a government will rest upon his shoulders that doesn't happen yet And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and what? Prince of Peace. But until Israel, at least the remnant, that one day, as Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Until that happens, they are in trouble. And they continue to be in trouble. And so we pray for Israel that they will look upon the one whom they pierced. I have good friends with Jews for Jesus. Um, I've been a stalwart supporter of them. I had some friends that were in San Francisco with a branch there, and they would come to our church often, and I'd call them every once in a while and talk to them. I long to pick up the phone and talk to them now. It's so amazing when you talk to them. They know the history of Israel. They know the Old Testament so well, but they come back to this. Until they look upon the one whom they pierced. They will be under the disciplined hand of God. And so you and I, as sympathetic as we can be, and our hearts go out for those uh, atrocities that a mother must have went through, women. I read today that one of the Hamas guys that they captured, they finally got information out of him, and he said, our instructions were to take their women and do whatever we pleasured to them. And you look at it and you go, man, in a civilized world that we live in, how can this happen? 
but until you look on the one whom you pierced. And I think those words are just as important for us because he's on that cross because I pierced him, right? And that's why I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And this is why we keep sending missionaries. We keep preaching the gospel. We go when we can go. We evangelize because, look, it isn't just Israelites over there who are suffering this. Your neighbors are dying and headed to hell. I mean, the, the gravity, our, our own children, maybe we have unsaved children, our family members, that the gravity of not seeing the one who was pierced and believing on him, the result is far worse than what they saw over there. So we pray that people will look on the one who was pierced because he still is the only way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to the kingdom which Israel so desperately still thinks they're going to get. By, by just fighting and standing and, and, and being Israel. There's no way to that kingdom except through Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the one who came through Israel, was in the midst of Israel, and was rejected by Israel. For a Jew to come to know the Lord, they have to say, we murdered the Messiah. We missed him. And that's what needs to happen today. And that's how we pray for them. And so if tonight you lay your head down and you pray for the peace of Jerusalem and Israel, pray the gospel. Pray for men and women that are over there right now sharing the gospel. There's Christian universities that their children go over and spend six months over there. Many of them have evangelistic classes that they go out and evangelize, attempt to evangelize Jews and Arabs. Pray for them. Consider supporting a good biblical organization that tries to reach the Jewish people just like we would try to reach Filipinos or anything like that. Pray for them. They'll look on the one they pierce. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message which starts with a passage of a great tract of land that you promised the nation of Israel. You promised it to Abraham. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And then you give it to them. They're as undeserving as we are of our own salvation. And they never fully grasp it. They never fully take what you gave them. And Lord, we're reminded we so often settle for so little. We give up our joy because we don't drive out the enemies in our hearts. We won't forgive. We're bittered, embittered. We're frustrated. We're we hold on to things, Lord, and, and we just lose our joy. So, Lord, forgive us for that. And I pray that all of us, we'd be those who would forgive as we have been forgiven. We would not let the, the dagger of bitterness drive our joy away. Lord, we thank you that you still raise men up, men in this room, dads, husbands, men who love Christ who you give families to, to care for and to settle and to give them protection and a place to live, Lord. I pray for the men in this room that they would be godly men. They would act like men as we studied in 1 Corinthians. That we would take our role serious for what you have called us to do. And I thank you that you show through the scriptures that you raise men up. You still do it to this day. You're calling men even now to leadership in this church. So, Lord, we thank you that may we all, as men, lead as you've asked us to. But then, Lord, we can't help but pray for the nation of Israel. Wherever they are in this disciplined hand of God, they are suffering tonight. Many families are eternally separated from their family members. But the only peace is going to come through the Prince of Peace. So we plead with you. That you would use this atrocity, this tragedy, this acts of sinful men to bring many to your name. That Jews, both there and abroad, they're scattered, still scattered all over the globe. We pray that you would cause them, Lord, by your gracious act to turn to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And thus, 
the gate to the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that for your glory, Lord. Lord, I thank you for a church that loves the gospel. And we pray that we would allow that to motivate our lives, Lord. And we would not settle for less, Lord. You've done so much for us. May we root out the things in our life that are contrary to you. May we chase those things that wage war against our souls. May we chase that out with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.